Welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and my guest today is the designer Stephen Burks. Stephen's design work and his unique approach to the practice of design have been celebrated in so many ways. He's received numerous awards, including the Brooklyn Museum slash Modernism Young Designer Award and the Smithsonian Cooper Hewitt National Design Award. He's worked with educational institutions, including the Harvard Graduate School of Design, the Harvard Innovation Lab, and Berea College. He's worked on collaborations with and commissions for high-end design companies, including Capellini and Massoni. And he's widely admired for his innovative collaborations with artisans around the world and for his commitment to incorporating handcrafted elements into his designs. The occasion for our conversation today is that Stephen is also the subject of a major exhibition titled Stephen Burke's Shelter in Place, which is currently on view at the High Museum of Art in Atlanta. The accompanying exhibition catalog, also titled Stephen Burke's Shelter in Place, is appropriately a beautifully designed book edited by Monica Obniski that includes contributions by, among others, Glenn Adamson, and Michelle Joan Wilkinson, and also includes a conversation between Stephen and the late cultural critic, Bell Hooks. I'm frankly thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to you, Stephen. Welcome to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Great introduction. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate it. Let's start with this. In the book, there's an exchange between you and Michelle Joan Wilkinson, a curator at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And one of the questions she asks you is, What conversations are most needed in the design world now and why? I found your reply in the book very insightful. So if you don't mind, I'd like to pose the same question. And I don't know exactly when she asked you that, but I'd also like to ask you now whether you think that the COVID pandemic, the summer of protests following the murder of George Floyd and the aftermath of that have, from your perspective, permanently shifted any design world priorities? Hmm. Okay, so that's two questions. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> um, starting with the first one, you know, I've, I've always been a big advocate for um, diversity and inclusion. And and uh, I guess um, thinking about those as big topics to discuss and, and what we should be sh- sort of be at the forefront of uh, the design discussion around the world today, um, I would say for sure, um, diversity and, and conversation around otherness, like what it means to be other. And, and when we talk about other, we have to first, um, admit that the design world and, and most cultural production, um, in general, uh, that is heralded around the world comes from a very Eurocentric perspective. Uh, and so there is a bigger conversation, um, to be had, uh, which I think we're just beginning to kind of scratch the surface of. Uh, and, and I think the protests in 2020 went a long way to, um, to kind of progressing that conversation, that dialogue um, around what it means to um, be other than European, right? Um, and, you know, taking it much broader than white versus black as we often polarize ourselves in this country, to looking at the rest of the world and and considering how um, what I consider to be the majority world or the other 90%, let's say, um, 
begins to have access to or have the opportunity to participate in what we consider to be contemporary design. For the second question, uh, I I don't um, I don't really subscribe to permanence. I think as a as a as an idea. Um, I think in general, uh, you know, change is the only true constant, and and I already feel uh, the pendulum sort of swinging back to um, a more conservative place, um, meaning uh, maybe the design world um, doesn't have uh, the appetite for um, these difficult, challenging issues uh, to maintain a conversation around these and really make. Uh, the commitment to change, I think, is is a long-term project. Um, and, you know, those of us that were able to find community um, in uh, 2020 and beyond um, really have to build upon that community and, and, uh, and continue to uh, come together and do the work that matters uh, to make change happen. I'm curious to know from your your personal perspective, I mean, reading your biography and the various places that it lives on the on the web, it, it's often said that you're the first black American to receive the National Design Award. And I wonder what you think about both, you know, the responsibility and the importance of your role in that context, but also, you know, or versus the possibility that in some future world, it would be unnecessary and ridiculous to say something like you were the first black American to receive that award. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, I don't, <laughs> it's difficult to, for me to separate uh, my identity from, uh, from our practice. And so, you know, when I first started working in design, I didn't really think of myself as a black designer. I thought of myself as a designer. Um, and it's, it's, I think the quest for normalcy or a normalizing condition where um, identity doesn't have to necessarily lead the work, that the work can speak for itself, um, is the condition that we all seek, right? Where, um, you know, what we do uh, lives outside of us, but also includes a part of us. Um, so, so in a way, um, I don't know that uh, I'd ever want to completely separate uh, my identity, my history, the history of uh, people of African descent from uh, the work that I'm doing, because I think that that's uh, critically important in terms of shaping the conversation around my work and, and kind of pushing into new territories and boundaries of what, uh, what design is and what design can be. Um, and I feel quite proud to, uh, to wear that kind of <laughs> badge of honor, I guess you could say. Um, and at the same time, um, opening doors for those that, that come after me. Um, you know, this is in a way what the project, uh, The Ancestors, is all about from the Shelter in Place uh, Commission by the High Museum, um, about recognizing uh, those histories, recognizing who came before us um, and acknowledging that, uh, you know, in, in some cases we, well, actually in, in most, if not all cases, we cannot be where we are today had people not forged new ground and new territory um, in the past. Mm. Now, your practice 
has focused primarily on functional pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, but you say at one point in the book that you've, quote, been experimenting with making objects without function as a means of saying things that I haven't been able to say through design. Would you talk about that distinction and what kinds of things you find it hard to say through functional pieces? Um, I'm also curious whether those actually feel like distinct creative endeavors to you or whether your ideas before they they take any kind of physical form travel freely back and forth between those two territories. Sure, of course. I mean, when I was a child, I wanted to be a sculptor before I discovered design. And um, as I studied at the new Bauhaus, I mean, I'm my education is deeply indoctrinated in in the kind of Western uh, description of what design is, um, which I think uh, historically separates itself from from art or from the non-functional. And when we think about the ways that uh, you know um, commercial manufacturers are interested in mass production. Um, it's often difficult to um, <laughs> uh, to express the bigger ideas in something like a lamp or uh, or a chair. Um, and it's not that we're not trying; it's just that you know they may not be interested. Uh, and so, when we do have the opportunity, of course, um, with uh, uh, clients that understand in many ways uh, how um, how important it is for us to um, take on these topics through design um, or at least understand that design is capable of taking on these topics, um, then, then of course, we, you know, we wholeheartedly uh, try to bring those concepts to the forefront. Um, when thinking about non-functional objects, only, only recently, um, only since Shelter-in-Place, uh, has it become really exciting for us to take on uh, non-functional uh, um, I guess, <laughs> less commercial approaches to design. And, and I think in other cultures in the world, um, there is no distinction between making something uh, that may express your spirituality um, and making something that may support your body. Uh, and in many ways, those two things can kind of become one uh, outside of what we consider to be uh, design as a Western concept. And so um, we're approaching, I think, a more, a a space in our practice where we're looking at a more holistic uh, view of what design is and what design can say um, and and how design can express um, these other uh, notions of what's functional and and what isn't, let's say. Um, And I I guess I go back to um, the Ancestors Project as, as a great expression of this because you know, um, for for many of us in this country who who have uh, who struggled uh, and and still are struggling with uh, with racial equity in America, um, the the idea of acknowledging uh, a larger um, community and a community that may not still exist on Earth <laughs> is quite a, a spiritual one. Um, how do you express that? in design? How do, you, how do you talk about that in a design object? And how do we continue to keep those conversations going through a design object? Um, these are questions that, that uh, Stephen Burke's Man Made as a Studio has begun to ask um, as we've progressed through the Shelter-in-Place project. 
The idea that design is a Western concept, which you said just recently, and and you've expressed on more than one occasion before now, including in the book. Mm. Would you talk a little bit more about that and whether it's a, a you know something that took shape in your mind before your career started? Uh, allowing you to spend significant amounts of time in other parts of the world or whether your experiences in other parts of the world shaped your sense of that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, up until 2005, and I guess I began my career really at the start of the millennium, I did my first commercial pieces for Capolini. Um, so we're talking a little bit over 20 years ago. Um, but up until 2005, I mean, I was designing what um, I thought I should be making. I mean, looking at form, looking at color, trying to come up with a unique vocabulary, trying to kind of get noticed as a young designer. And it wasn't until um, I did my first uh, kind of workshop as a product development consultant with uh, the nonprofit Aid to Artisans in South Africa uh, that, that I had to kind of recognize, wow, there's a completely other way of approaching the manifestation of objects through material. Um, and it isn't considered design uh, outside of <laughs> the context that, that I was in. I mean, if I, if I look at my education, if I look at um, the, uh, the canon of, of what we consider to be design, uh, the ways of making that are age-old, um, that require uh, community-based practices that are primarily craft-based are not considered design. And, um, and I found this challenging um, because we all dream, we all have ideas, and, and we all have a kind of approach to material culture, which is an expression of our, our society and our way of life. And so making that kind of clean cut distinction about what is design and what isn't um, forced me to ask myself, well, who's making that decision and why are they making that decision? And, and uh, what kind of, um, kind of power is, is defined and, and designated by a decision like that? I mean, in the words of Leslie Loco, um, director of the African Futures Institute and the, the next curator of the um, Venice Biennale uh, architecture um, exhibition, you know, why not Africa? Um, why, uh, let's say, couldn't solutions to the world's problems be coming from a place outside of Europe? Uh, and so, you know, broadening the definition of design within our practice has really opened up uh, a lot of new territory for exploring ideas around um, around culture, around uh, making around uh, community, um, the the kind of uh, collective act of uh, expressing a set of ideas through material, et cetera, thinking about design um, as a larger, um, let's say, component of the built environment. I mean, so many more ways of considering design and its impact on the world um, through that one question. So uh, thank you for asking yeah and it it seems through your uh, efforts to collaborate among design companies and artisans around the world that there has been some resistance on the part of the design companies who mm. are oper operating comfortably in the framework of you know eurocentric design and 21st century capitalism mm. to the modes of collaboration that you've been championing 
with, you know, individuals from what you beautifully refer to as the majority world, playing roles not just of craftspeople, but co-creators and designers. So do you think that that there's a necessary antithesis there? Or do you think rather it's just that change is often slow and hard? And do you see these new ways of working being increasingly possible, increasingly accepted? Yeah, I mean, uh, change is hard. <laughs> and, uh, and quite honestly, you know, change goes against um, uh, the kind of liberal uh, project when we think about economics, right? You, you, uh, to, to consider a completely new way of working um, may just change your bottom line and it could change for the better or for the worse, let's say. Um, but from, from our perspective, uh, it, it's been so necessary um, to, to uh, push in those directions, um, to, to try to uh, think about how we can um, insert ourselves into the mechanism, uh, the, the kind of traditional mechanism of making a thing uh, and how through that insertion of just a, a few different approaches um, to design, we can also bring with us um, all of the other cultures of the world who aren't currently participating. Uh, and, and I think when we started working in this way, um, it was really only the nonprofits that were interested. I remember um, there was a kind of... Uh, trend, I suppose, toward uh, working with artisans and, and looking outside of the world. Maybe that trend has peaked um, or fallen. Uh, but, but when we began, I was having a lot of conversations with a lot of companies and very few um, were interested. And if they were interested, they were interested for, um, for the story and not necessarily for um, what it means to commit to the product. Um, even today, as we are finding more and more companies willing to allow us to, um, to actually implement our workshop-based practice, we're also finding uh, companies that, that may not be interested in investing in those other places in the world. And um, I mean, historically speaking, I like to talk about the difference between uh, America post-war and uh, let's say a country like Italy, post-war, a country the size of California that dominates the home furnishings industry. And with allied investment in Italy, right, um, family-owned businesses that were deeply rooted in craft techniques became the brands that we know and respect today. Uh, so in parallel, if we could have a similar kind of investment in other places in the world, we believe it would be possible to see... Um, you know, design brands and design culture developed in those places. Uh, and so that's kind of what we're pushing for, but that, <laughs> that's a lot to ask in a way. Um, there is uh, a, a new approach. Um, maybe you're familiar with our development triangle, uh, which, which was a, a kind of economic model that we drafted for aid to artisans, I want to say back in 2006, 2007. Um, we've carried that forward and we've begun to look at how we can expand upon that model. For example, um, we've begun a project with uh, the nonprofit Mass Design Group, an architecture firm in Rwanda, um, looking at a particular technique and looking at how we can build capacity in that country 
um, around a small group of artisans uh, to push um, not just their know-how, but uh, the collective know-how of the community to uh, towards making a product in Rwanda. Um, and our approach at the moment is to think about how we can uh, consider the artisan as, um, let's say, early stage collaborator or as a, a key collaborator in the concept development phase of, a, let's say, a three-stage development process towards making a product. So we have concept development, design development, and implementation. And the artisans in country would be involved in helping us with concept development um, and maybe part of design development in as much as we could produce uh, usable prototypes in country. And then those prototypes would be um, handed over to a manufacturer elsewhere in the world who could find a way to implement um, at a very high level. Uh, that implementation then leads to a product which then could drive resources um, back to the original country uh, to begin to build capacity there toward manufacturing. Um, I'm probably giving away <laughs> a lot here in this description, a lot of detail, but, but this is the way that um, we're trying to kind of expand the role of the designer. Um, and, you know, we're looking at uh, not just... Uh, the, the shape and form and color and material of a thing, but also the strategy, also how we get these communities uh, engaged in um, contributing uh, a value, the valuable skill of their hand uh, in combination with industry, and then how we get industry to then support um, that hand production in other places in the world. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about the development triangle. I think that's fascinating. And do you find that that putting it in those terms and with the, you know, there's a wonderful uh, graphic in the book that just, you know, makes the the basics of the idea very clear um, that that is a more appealing way for industry, for companies to, to think about this kind of collaboration? Um, well, I think it makes it very, very clear, as you, as you mentioned, right, what their role is. And the development triangle is um, literally um, a triangle, three pillars of, uh, let's say, stakeholders, um, the designer in one corner who has a, a kind of business relationship with the distributor in one corner, the artisan in another corner who has a creative relationship with the designer and hopefully begins to have a business relationship with the distributor. And so um, the nonprofit traditionally in the center of that, bringing all of these parties together around community-based uh, development. And so um, with that triangle in mind, the, the distributor or the manufacturer, let's say, uh, the brand, quote unquote, um, knows that uh, they will um, work with the designer to kind of fulfill a brief or a need. Um, we need a lamp or we need a chair or we need a table. Um, the designer would then work with the artisan uh, to think about innovative ways of achieving that brief. And, and we believe, um, as we say in the book, that the closer the hand gets to the act of making, the more potential there is for innovation. And so that relationship with the, with the artisan is a great way for the designer to learn new ways of looking at material and technique um, and process. Um, and then lastly, the artisan, uh, in relation to the brand, um, hopefully learns, um, 
you know, packaging um, and uh, distribution and uh, fulfillment and marketing techniques that that make that whole triangle make sense for everyone um, and a very equitable way of producing a product that uses the hand where the hand is most useful, um, the machine where the machine is most useful and, and the designer um, in a collaborative role rather than a dictatorial role. So um, this is what we have leveraged our entire practice on <laughs> in, in many ways. And, and so, you know, we're constantly looking for ways to, uh, to kind of um, retool that triangle uh, to everyone's best advantage. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems uh, logical that you've been able to formulate this kind of model that, you know, many of the choices that you've made in your career have given you an unusual degree of insight into the full spectrum of what it takes to bring a design idea to market, you know, concept making, packaging, marketing, publicizing, selling. Hmm. Um, you've had a hand in these things in a way that not all designers choose to do. And I'm curious about what influence you think that awareness has had on your own creative process over the years when you go back to, you know, working on your own stuff. Absolutely. I mean, I guess the best way to describe it for us is that we believe design is cultural production. I mean, we don't separate um, what we do from what happens in the art world or what happens in fashion or or what happens in literature or um, in the academy. I mean, we, we like to believe that, uh, you know, design can have that type of impact um, in the world. And, and okay, you know, home furnishings <laughs> may not be solving all of the world's great problems, uh, but, but it has allowed us uh, a very high degree of access um, to the factories uh, of the world um, and, and, and factories that have quite a lot of influence on um, the culture of the, you know, the way we live with things. And so uh, in, that, in that regard, we've learned quite a lot, as, as you mentioned. Um, and so, you know, I don't, I guess I don't really make a distinction between um, my work and, and the work that we're doing at large. We try to um, have all of that be approached in, in the same way. You know, a, a chair fuels a packaging design. Um, you know, packaging design fuels a, a mirror or, a, you know, um, we're, we're even looking at electronics now. And so um, all of these things change uh, the way we live and uh, the way we think about our fellow man and the way we we should be living in, in greater community with one another. So um, all of that is about, <laughs> I guess, in a sense, to come full circle, sheltering in place, right? Mm. Mm. Another idea in the book that caught my attention uh, was that handcraft, which is clearly central to your practice, is the, quote, original customization. And that phrase got me thinking about the difference between today's connotations of customization in our, you know, hyper-industrialized consumerist marketplace, I'm thinking, you know, luxury and exclusivity. Hmm. And on the other hand, using handcraft as the basis for inclusivity and collaboration, as you do. Um, is, is that a tension that you feel in your work or does that resolve itself? And if so, how? Uh, yeah, I mean, hmm, it's, 
it's not always easy to honor the hand. Um, I have to say, uh, we, we tend to struggle with, um, the notion that craft is somehow, uh, about ethnicity and, and that craft is somehow, uh, um, depending on where it's made, let's say, um, is somehow a, a lower art form. Uh, and I think that, uh, if you mentioned luxury, if we, if we compare, what's happening in other places in the world with what's happening in the great luxury houses of Europe, for example. Um, the metier or the, the, the way of making um, may be quite similar, but one is considered craft and the other considered luxury. And, uh, you know, this is exactly what, uh, what I was describing before about the kind of the hierarchy of... Um, I guess, uh, civilizations in the world. And we don't believe that one uh, people or a culture should be dictating taste. Uh, and I think now in, in this most pluralistic time in history, we, we find ourselves um, learning from uh, age-old wisdom. We find ourselves um, looking to other places in the world for solutions um, in uh, the quote-unquote minority world. And so... Um, I think that uh, it it is a struggle, it is a challenge, but but we we try to keep those thoughts and 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 those differences at the forefront of our work. Hmm. Well, the last thing that I wanted to ask you about is shelter in place, the the subtitle of the book and the exhibition, which references work that occupied you during the stringent days of lockdown. You were in Brooklyn during the COVID pandemic. Mm. And it didn't just occupy you. It also involved Malika Leeper, who is the cultural director at your studio, Stephen Burke's Man Made, and also your partner at home. And I'm very excited that Malika can join us to talk about what sheltering in place meant for you too, and also about the ideas and projects that you drew from it. Yeah, absolutely. Malika's here. Hi. <laughs> it's great to be here. Thank you. So reflecting on shelter in place, just some context. We really just moved in uh, together in Brooklyn when uh, the pandemic began. Um, we had met at Harvard and Stephen was finishing a fellowship there, the Loeb Fellowship, while I was doing my master's in urban planning. and. Um, I think for a lot of people, sheltering in place was a time for pause and reflection, and it, it definitely was for us. But this uh, exhibition very quickly occupied our time. And so we, we were very busy uh, and really applying our imagination to, in some ways, liberate us from, from the feeling of being trapped indoors and having to confront our domestic surroundings for the first time. Um, and we quickly found ourselves just making things and, you know, just using the materials that we had on hand, recycling and uh, in the case of the woven TV, a, a TV screen that we found underneath our bed, which was uh, left over from the previous tenants. And we started asking ourselves in the case of the TV, for example, how do we live with this object? And we had time to consider it and to be very crafty. 
And through this act of making, and uh, in addition with conversations with Monica Abniski, the curator of the exhibition at the High Museum, we started to question how design confronts global crises. And the exhibition, the questions that we were engaging with really evolved quite naturally from there. Mm. What did the woven TV look like? <laughs> um, it actually looked like a bamboo basket in the end. Um, <laughs> I mean, that was the final version, the original one. Um, I, I don't know, Stephen, how would you describe that first prototype? Um, well, I mean, in the words of Ettore Satsas, it was a kind of proto-prototype, <laughs> <laughs> which, which uh, honestly means that it, it was kind of barely standing and there was quite a lot of hot glue involved. And uh, uh, we, we weren't really concerned with how it looked as much as what it was beginning to say um, and how it gave us um, a new way of interacting with the television. I mean, it, it, it liberated this sort of black mirror from the wall um, and allowed us to um, create a kind of object uh, to contain it and then allowed us to be able to move that object around and uh, watch television from wherever we wanted to be. But then it also um, became a kind of site of personalization. So Malik and I and even Anwar began asking ourselves, okay, well, maybe we, you know, continue to weave this TV out of the recycling that we have piled up. <laughs> over in the corner there or or maybe you know I'm just gonna you know keep my magazines here somehow or I'm gonna hang my you know sweatshirt over it or it 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 sort of evolved into more than a tv and and I think you know quite honestly the exhibition has given us the space um to be more free with uh with the definition of of design and and these um these objects so they're not just questioning, um, you know, the kind of traditional uh, uh, quality or nature of, of what they were, how we thought about them, but they're also questioning, you know, how we use them um, and how they kind of create space in the future for how people could use them. Um, they're in that way very radical uh, and, and very speculative. Um, and so, you know, even now we're, um, we've created more space in our in our practice to do more of this kind of speculative work because it's it's sort of allowed us to um, to open up and and dream a bit more to work outside of a brief per se and and look at what what comes naturally and and um, and maybe what doesn't as being potential for a completely new way of uh, engaging with a product that that we thought was dead. For example, the TV being uh, the prime example here. So, but always, always dealing with it in a contemporary way. I think radical design has become very hot at the moment, and just from a aesthetic perspective, let's say it's um, it's very easy to define what radical design is and looks like. Um, but I think what really, when we think of radical design, 
and Stephen mentioned this in a in a conversation with Glenn Adamson at the High recently. It's about dealing with contemporary problems. It's about uh, really as designers uh, taking on new ways of living, introducing new ways of, um, as Stephen said, relating to objects in the home, in the domestic environment. It does seem like the best possible outcome that the the confinement of lockdown and sheltering in place was that level of freedom of thought and creativity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can't say that we were alone uh, in this, but but we, we did have, um, I think, an incredible outcome. Um, we're, we're just so pleased with uh, the way the exhibition has uh, invited so many people um, through its doors to 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 think about these things, and and we're incredibly pleased with how the book um, is asking even bigger questions uh, and challenging all of us. Um, so uh, it's, it's it's fantastic. It's been fantastic. Well, thank you, Stephen and Malika, for coming on the podcast. It's been delightful to talk to you both. I'm filled with admiration for your work and what you're bringing to the world of design. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you, Jessica. Yeah. Come by the studio sometime. We'd love to have you over. I will take you up on that. (laughs) And anyone who can should get to Atlanta's High Museum of Art to see the exhibition Stephen Burke's Shelter in Place. It's on view there until March through March 5th. The book, Stephen Burke's Shelter in Place, is available now wherever books are sold. Thank you for listening. Please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.